All right, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. <clears throat> Father, I believe we're looking at such an important truth this morning regarding repentance and what does and doesn't produce it. I think there's so much wrong understanding out there associated with miracles uh, and the misconception that to see them would produce belief, perhaps even when uh, Scripture hasn't. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that the truth from these verses would be revealed very clearly to your people. I don't know if there's another place in Scripture that makes this point as clearly as these verses do, Lord. And so give us an understanding we can take with us, hopefully share with others. Pray that it wouldn't be something we would just keep for ourselves, but when we meet people who believe or even argue that miracles are what God would provide if he was real or if he desired to see people saved, that these verses would come to mind, Lord. Help us to see the power behind your word, that it's what produces repentance in our lives and, I, and faith. And I pray that as we look at these verses this morning, Lord, that that's a continued work that would be happening in our hearts, where you'd be revealing areas of our lives where you would have us turn to become more like Christ and that you'd be strengthening our faith, strengthening our faith as these verses wash over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is, What Produces Godly Repentance? What Produces Godly Repentance? Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 16, verse 30, toward the end of the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Let's start at verse 27 for context. The rich man who was in torment said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, referring to Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he, that Lazarus, may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Let your brothers hear Moses and the prophets. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What is Moses and the prophets when, the, when Abraham says that? That's scripture, right? That's a New Testament way to refer to the Old Testament. And the rich man objected to this idea that his brothers could listen to Moses and the prophets or the scriptures, probably because he knew that his family did not take Moses and the prophets or the scriptures seriously. He didn't think scripture would work because he had such a low view of scripture. He never obeyed scripture, so why would they? Instead, he thinks that they need what to believe or to repent, huh? Yeah, a miracle, someone raised from the dead. And this brings us to lesson one. Godly repentance allows people to avoid the rich man's fate. Godly repentance allows people to avoid the rich man's fate. Notice at the end of verse 30, it says, they will repent. And so this is interesting. The rich man knew what his brothers must do to avoid the torment that he's experiencing, and that's repent. So he wouldn't repent in his earthly life, but it seems he didn't have to be in torment too long to recognize what would have allowed him to avoid this fate and what would allow his brothers to avoid this fate as well, and that's repentance. And this means he knows why he was in torment, because he didn't repent. And so we know it's not because he was rich. We know it's because he wouldn't turn from his sin, and there are many people who will be lost or who will experience torment for the same reason as the rich man here, because they will not repent from their sin. Something interesting about the rich man's lack of repentance in his earthly life is there's no evidence of repentance or change or remorse in the rich man's life after his death. 
And so this is, I, I've shared a few times in the other sermons on this passage that it's really one of the most unique accounts in all of Scripture because it gives us a window into the next life and what takes place with people. And what we see here with the rich man is a heart that is not changed at all. I mean, if you, if you didn't know this account and you thought that someone was sent to torment for their sins, you would expect that they would reach torment and then they'd be filled with remorse or brokenness over the sin they committed. But there's no hint of that whatsoever. Let me explain or, or explain what I mean by getting you to notice some things about the rich man that show that his heart never changed. First, do you see how two times he tried to order Lazarus around? Two times he tried to treat Lazarus uh, like a servant. It's as though he thought he was superior to Lazarus in his earthly life, and then he still thought he was superior to Lazarus in the next life, even when he was able to see that Lazarus was at the place of honor near Abraham's bosom. Look in verse 24. He called out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Tell him to come serve me and to do this for me. Verse 27, he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. Second, do you see how he argued with Abraham? Do you see the stubbornness, the pride, the the belief that he knows better? In verse 29, Abraham said, that his brothers had scriptural, scripture available to them, but what did the rich man say in verse 30? No. No, that's not true, Abraham. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not going to be good enough for them. They, they will not be brought to repentance simply by scripture itself. I know better than you. I'm right. You're wrong. He tells Abraham they need a witness from the dead. And so the point is that even in death, the rich man remains stubborn, proud, and argumentative. There's no sorrow, no remorse about his earthly life whatsoever. Warren Wiersbe said, In spite of the fact that the rich man was in torment in Hades, he did not change. He was still self-centered. He argued instead of submitting. This indicates that the punishment of lost sinners is not remedial. It does not improve them. Hades and hell, listen to this, this is important. Hades and hell are not hospitals for the sick. In other words, they are not places where people are healed or they recover. Instead, they are prisons for the condemned. Now, if you didn't know this account and you knew that a man was in torment like this, what would you think would happen to his heart? It would change. He would be broken. He'd be sorrowful over what he did. Why did his heart not change? Or let me word it a differently, a different way. What is the only thing that can change man's heart? The gospel. There's only one thing that can change man's heart, and that's the gospel, and that's the one thing that the rich man had rejected. And in rejecting the gospel, he rejected that one thing that could have changed him, and he will spend all of eternity as an unrepentant man with an unchanged heart because he turned away from the only thing that could have changed his heart. So no matter how, and that's what's, what's, what's it's almost unimaginable, I mean, to, to wrap your mind around this, why people would spend a tree in hell, but part of the reason is that they will be there because their hearts never change. They rejected the gospel, the one thing that could have prevented them from going to hell, there's no amount of suffering in hell that can ever make someone different. There's no amount of suffering in the lake of fire that could ever change someone's hearts. And you know this is apparent. If you could punish people enough to change them, you could spank your children enough to change their hearts, right? You just keep spanking them until their hearts change. 
What's the only thing that can change our children's hearts? The gospel, and that's why we preach that to them. Now let's pause looking at this account for a moment. Turn to Luke 3. We're going to be flipping around a lot this morning to drive home the points made by these few verses. Look at Luke 3 with me. And by the way, that's not to say that spanking doesn't play a part in our children's lives. Spanking is intended to uh, reform them temporarily to get them to see the fault in what they're doing or recognize their sinfulness, hopefully turn to Christ, be discouraged from that behavior that they were engaging in. So look at me, by the, and by the way, if we hear babies this morning, I don't probably never, you know, repeat this too much at our church. We love children, love the sound of children. It's a sad thing to go into a church and never, never hear children. And so don't ever be uh, concerned or uncomfortable when we hear children crying or anything along those lines. They can always turn me up at the sound booth. So here's the context. John the Baptist is performing a baptism. A baptism of what? Okay, come on, guys. He's performing a baptism of repentance to prepare people for the Messiah. He can't be performing a Christian baptism to identif- that identifies with Christ's death, bill, and resurrection because Christ hasn't died, been buried, and resurrected. And so he's performing this baptism of repentance to prepare people for the Messiah's coming. And then look at verse 7. He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John sees the religious leaders coming, not to be baptized, not to repent, but to check up on what he's doing. He tells them to repent. But he knows they're not going to repent. This is important. Give me your attention for a moment. He knows they're not going to repent because of their relationship with who? Does anyone know? This is important. He knows they will not repent because of their relationship with Abraham. They are descendants of Abraham, and John knows that they're relying on that relationship for salvation versus repentance or relationship with christ knowing this look what john adds in verse 9 do not presume to say to yourselves we have abraham as our father for i tell you god is able to is able from these stones to raise up children for abraham so john wants to see them repent he knows the obstacle to their repentance is their descendancy from abraham so before they can even respond to John telling him to repent, anticipating that, he says, don't tell me that. John says, you need to repent, and don't tell me you're not going to repent, or you don't need to repent because you're descendants from Abraham. And this brings us to lesson two. Being Abraham's descendant is is no substitute for repentance. Lesson two, being Abraham's descendant is no substitute for repentance. We must understand, especially for uh, the book of Galatians, but other places in the New Testament, that Abraham had two categories of children. Let me say it one more time. He had two categories of children, physical and spiritual. That's right. He had physical children or descendants, and that's the Jews. And he had spiritual children or Christians who have put their faith in Christ. A few verses, although there's lots of verses I could give you on this. Romans 2.28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly or physically. A Jew is one inwardly or spiritually. Galatians 3.7. Know then that it is those of faith 
who are the sons of Abraham. Now, the interesting thing is this. There were lots of Jews in Christ's day who were physical children of Abraham, but they were not spiritual children of Abraham. And there are lots of non-Jews or Gentiles like us who are not physical children of Abraham, but we are spiritual children of Abraham. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he had to contend with this same misconception that John had to contend with here. If you go and turn to John 8, turn to John 8. In other words, Jesus, just like John, had to contend with Jews who were trusting more in their descendancy from Abraham than in their repentance and faith in Christ. They're trusting more in the relationship with Abraham than their relationship with Christ. So John 8, we're going to go pretty quickly. I want to keep this to one sermon, and so I have to go through many of these verses quickly. John 8, and skip some as well. John 8, 32, Jesus said, You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 33, they answered him. They said, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone, which is a completely ridiculous statement since they were slaves in Egypt and throughout the Old Testament. But we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus talks to them about being free. They respond that they've always been free because they're Abraham's descendants. Skip to verse 37. Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now, this is interesting. Jesus acknowledges that they are offspring of Abraham, but offspring of Abraham in what way? Physically. In a minute, minute, he's going to say they're not offspring of Abraham, spiritually at least. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. What father is that? He says that their father is who? The devil. They answered him, and they said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did and not trying to murder me. So now notice Jesus says they're not Abraham's children, right after saying they are Abraham's children, because now he means they're not Abraham's children spiritually. They're the devil's children. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What worse thing could Jesus say to the descendants of Abraham who were convinced that they were going to go to heaven simply for being descendants of Abraham than your father is the devil? Go ahead and turn back to Luke 16, and I'll connect the dots here. There's apocryphal writing, in other words, writing that's not in our Bibles, it is in Catholic Bibles, it's not part of the canon, and and I think it's in Maccabees, where the Jews believed that when they reached heaven, who's going to welcome them there? At the gate. Yeah, Abraham himself. So the Jews thought having Abraham as their father meant that they're on their way. So what does Jesus do? He preaches this account about a Jew who had Abraham as his what? Father. 
but found himself in torment. Notice, or let me ask this, how did the rich man repeatedly refer to Abraham? He didn't call him Abraham. Look in verse 24. He calls out. Well, I guess he did call him Abraham, but he calls him Father Abraham. <laughs> verse 24. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Verse 27. He said, I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house. Verse 30. He said, no, Father Abraham. There's no record of him calling him anything without also calling him Father. So you have Jews. So just, I, I told you why many of Jesus's teachings sound outrageous, and it's not always that clear in the text, but once you've got the background to it, you can't really imagine Jesus saying anything that would sound more offensive to his listeners than those things he said. This account serves as a rebuke to all of the Jews who thought that they didn't need to repent simply because they were Abraham's children. So one of the, the first thing that would have made this account seem completely outrageous and offensive to the Jews is they thought that rich people were objects of God's favor, and now Jesus preaches this account about a rich man going to torment, they thought that poor people were objects of God's disfavor on their way to torment. So Jesus preaches this account about a poor person being comforted. And one more thing that makes this account outrageous and offensive to the Jews, especially to the religious leaders, is he talks about this man who goes to torment as a child of Abraham. And the lesson is that even being a descendant of Abraham is no substitute for repentance. Now, if we continue with the account, the, with the, account the rich man is in the middle of arguing with Abraham that the word of God is not sufficient to produce repentance in his brother's lives. Look how Abraham responds in verse 31. Abraham said to them, to him, excuse me, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And notice those words, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And I just think this is such an incredibly important truth for us to understand. People are not going to be convinced to believe even if someone raises from the dead. And this brings us to lesson three. Miracles don't produce godly repentance. Miracles don't produce godly repentance. Let's just start with the Old Testament. Take your minds there, and can you think of any instances of miracles producing repentance? Can you think of any instances in the Old Testament of miracles producing repentance? We can make this a little simpler. Let me ask this an easier way. Who were the miracle workers in the Old Testament? There's three of them. There's only three. We, te we tend to think if you're walking around in the Old Testament, miracle here, miracle there, miracle, you know, everywhere you go, miracle on your left, miracle on your right. No. Most people in the Old Testament live just like us by faith. We get the highlights, but most people never saw any more miracles than you saw or have seen, which I'm guessing, if you're like me, is none. Who are the three miracle workers in the Old Testament? Moses, Elijah, and... Elisha, that's right. Moses unleashes the plagues on Egypt. It wouldn't be too much to say that there has never been a greater demonstration of the miraculous in all of human history, second to the first advent of Christ or the coming of Christ, 
than Moses' day and the plagues on Egypt. And that's what caused the Egyptians to believe, right? Listen to this. You sh- I should not be able to read this to you. I'm going to read some verses. It almost makes me mad, to be honest with you. I should not be able to read these verses. This is insane what I'm about to read, okay? Exodus 12, 29. This is about the Passover. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And listen to this. There was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Why was there this great cry of anguish throughout Egypt? You could say because all of these children died. But why did all of these children die? Because they were all unbelieving. We should not read this. Nine plagues had been unleashed on them before this. There's no reason that they still should have been so stubborn and proud so as not to put the blood over their doorposts. You can almost get mad at them for being so stiff-necked to lose their children. Nine plagues had been unleashed. All they had to do was put blood over the door, and they could have been spared. So what's my point? My point is miracles do not produce repentance and faith. If they did, all of Egypt would have been saved. No children would have died. The Passover the, would, there, would not have resulted in any deaths whatsoever. The entire generation of Israelites are not better than the Egyptians. The Israelites who witnessed the plagues in Egypt witnessed the miracles in the wilderness another season, although there, was no, there was, wasn't someone performing them. Moses wasn't performing them as much as he was in Egypt. There were still incredi- incredible miracles in the wilderness, the water coming from the rock, the, the bronze serpent lifted up, the people look at and are saved, the, the Red Sea parting. And then listen to this. Hebrews 4:17 With whom was God provoked for 40 years Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient so we see that they were unable to enter listen to this because of unbelief despite all of the miracles that they saw they still did not believe. Those miracles did not produce repentance and faith in their lives. That is astonishing to me. Now let's think about Elijah and Elisha, two of the other miracle workers in the Old Testament, and did people repent under their ministries? No. Why did the Assyrians come in and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722? Because the northern kingdom was apostate. And why was the northern kingdom apostate? Because the miracles that Elijah and Elisha performed did not produce repentance and faith in their lives. Assyria never would have come in and resettled the northern kingdom if the people would have repented under their ministries. Gideon. Can I just invite you, never use Gideon as an example of faith. Gideon is one of the greatest demonstrations of unbelief in Scripture. 
you don't want to take a man who was unbelieving and use him as a normative example for our Christian lives. Did the miracles that Gideon witnessed lead him to believe and trust God? Just listen. Judges 6.21, fire rises out of the rock and consumes the sacrifice. Was that miracle enough for Gideon? Come on, you know it's not, or else he wouldn't have wanted the situation with the fleece, right? So fire rises out of the rock, consumes the sacrifice, not enough for Gideon. Judges 6, 36 to 38, Gideon puts a fleece out, and he asks God for the fleece to be wet and for all of the ground around the fleece to be dry. And he sees that miracle, and that's when he started believing, right? No, he says, no, no, now you've got to reverse it, God. I've got to see something else. I know I've seen the fire out of the rock. I've seen the fleece. Now, Judges 6, 39 to 40, he asks for the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. He sees that miracle, and is that miracle enough for Gideon? No, God still had to take Gideon and send him down to the camp of the Midianites to listen to them talking in the middle of the night before Gideon would finally trust God. Moving to the New Testament, Jesus' ministry, probably the best example. He performed incredible miracles, yet the majority remained in unbelief. Listen to this verse. Okay, I know you can read this. I want you to deeply consider what I am about to read to you. Picture this. Matthew eleven twenty. Jesus began to denounce or criticize the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Jesus denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. That is not my commentary. I am reading the verse to you. This says that the places where Jesus performed his mightiest miracles, those people who saw the greatest demonstrations of the supernatural and miraculous, had to be denounced by Christ because of their unbelief. That is the exact opposite of what we would expect and the exact opposite of what many people believe or say. That if you just see people, what do people say? If I just saw a miracle, then I would believe. Scripture completely argues against that time and time again. Let me show you a few examples. Turn to John 2. Turn to John 2. Look at verse 23. When, John 2, 23, now when he, this is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So you read that and you say, okay, Pastor Scott, this is the exact opposite of what you just said, because now we've got people believing because of the miracles they witnessed. That is not what's going on. This is not belief unto salvation. This is fascination. This is amusement. These are enthusiastic, zealous people who are just thrilled to see someone performing miracles. Jesus recognizes this because he knows all people. And then look at verse 24, the next verse. Jesus, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them. He did not become their savior. 
Because he knew all people, he knew what was in their hearts, that this was not faith unto salvation or belief unto salvation. And he, because he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So they had this excitement about Jesus, but the faith was not genuine. Now, this sort of enthusiasm or excitement, it does not lead to salvation. But let me ask you this, is it common is it common to see an enthusiasm or an excitement or perhaps a zeal with people about spiritual matters? Have you ever seen people come to church and be super excited and talk about they can't wait for the doors to open again so they can return? Or have you ever met people and maybe they've attended a Bible study or you've spent some time with them and they see, they're like the soil where the seed springs up but then doesn't last, Right? So they're really enthusiastic and excited, but the real question isn't how do they look at this moment? What's the question? How do they look months, years from now? And these people were just excited about the miracles. Turn to John 6. That sort of excitement or zeal, it never produces salvation. It never produces spiritual growth or sanctification. It produces false converts who fall away within a matter of time. In John 6, look at verse 2. There's a large crowd that's following Jesus. Notice why they're following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Where they're watching people miraculously healed. They're following Jesus because of his miracles. And then he performs right after this one of his greatest miracles in feeding the 5,000. Now look at verse 66 to see what happened to these people. After this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You have all of these people who are following Jesus, super excited about the miracles he's performing. He turns and preaches to them that they should be seeking the true and greater bread from heaven, which is speaking of himself. The moment that they learned that they were not getting any more physical food or learning that they would not be seeing any more miracles, what do they do? They took off. They said, we don't want anything to do with it. The only reason we were here was for the show. We we're just here for some food. We want to see some people be healed. We want to see the supernatural. If we can't get that, we're gone. Turn to John 11. And while you turn there, just think, wouldn't you intuitively believe that if, if there was something that could cause people to believe, it would be a man taking a few loaves of bread and fish and multiplying it and feeding thousands of people with that? I mean, wouldn't that be an incredible miracle that would cause anyone witnessing it to believe? That's what you think. Scripture says it's the opposite. John 11. So, interestingly, the rich man wanted Lazarus raised from the dead to go back to his brothers, and Jesus did raise a man named Lazarus from the dead, not the same Lazarus from the account in Luke 16. This is the brother of Mary and Martha, And I'll show you what happens. Jesus raises Lazarus in verses 38 to 44. Do your Bibles have a heading around verse 45 or 47? Jesus Jesus raises Lazarus in verses 38 to 44. Do your Bibles have a heading around verse 45 or 47? What does it say? The plot to kill Jesus or the conspiracy to kill Jesus is what I found in most Bibles. Do you understand what you're seeing right here? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and after that, they repented and believed. 
No, after that, they start plotting his death. There's a conspiracy to have him murdered. He performs one of his greatest miracles, raising someone from the dead, and the religious leaders responded by trying to murder him. Look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And it gets even worse. Look at the next chapter at John 12, 10. Look at John 12, 10. That's not bad enough. The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus, it's, you don't want to be raised by Jesus, then the religious leaders are going to want to murder you, right? You might as well stay dead. So Jesus raises Lazarus. They want to murder Jesus, but then they want to murder Lazarus too because the person he raised was causing people to believe Jesus was the Messiah. Look at verse 37 to see it summed up. Though he, so John 12, 37, because this really is a summary verse for this whole lesson. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so you say, well, maybe it's because he hasn't been resurrected yet. Maybe because the ascension hasn't occurred. Things weren't any better after that. Turn to Acts 4. Now we're post-resurrection and ascension. Here's the context. In the previous chapter, in Acts chapter 3, I'm just trying to go fast through this, but in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John healed the man who'd been born lame. So they've healed the lame man, and look at verse 16, Acts 4, 16, saying, what shall we do with these men? What shall we do with Peter and John? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We cannot deny it. What did they want to do with the miracle that Peter and John performed? They wanted to wipe it out from existence. They wanted to deny it, but they said, we can't. There's no way we can hide it from people. Everyone knows about it, so what can we do instead? Look in verse 17. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in Jesus' name. In, in this name, verse 18, so they called them, they called Peter and John and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So instead of repenting and believing based on the miracle they witness, they want to make sure the news doesn't spread, so they call the apostles together and tell them to stop preaching. Lots of other places I could show you, but wanting to keep this to one sermon and believing that this probably makes the point clear the rich man said if his brothers witnessed a miracle such as someone being raised from the dead they would believe people witnessed countless miracles including someone being raised from the dead and they still didn't repent or believe now one of the obvious questions you could have is well what is the point of miracles then miracles legitimized the messenger Miracles provided credibility for the message. In other words, miracles demonstrated that the messenger truly was from God. They did not produce faith or belief, but they allowed the messenger to have a legitimate message or to legitimize that message by the miracles performed. Here's just two verses. There are others I could share on the subject. We're probably covering four or five things that honestly could have their own sermons. Here's just two, and I did actually think about that, okay, but I want to keep going through Luke's gospel. 
here's two verses, but lots of others I could share. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs, but it actually means the evidence. The evidence of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. In other words, the evidence of a true apostle is what? Signs, wonders, mighty works. The evidence of a true apostle is miracles. Did you know numerous people claim to be apostles today? I'm not joking. Even though the, off, the office no longer exists, the two offices in the church are elder and deacon, but according to this verse, if these people are true apostles, what should they be doing? They should be performing miracles. That's what the verse says. So if you ever meet someone who claims to be an apostle, make sure you ask them what miracles they've performed. And don't tell me some knee pain going away or lower back that was healed or something like that, all right? Something testable. These, these so-called apostles should be performing miracles to legitimize their apostleship. Another verse, Hebrews 2.1, we must pay closer attention to the message that we have heard. Here's why we must pay closer attention to the message. Hebrews 2.4, God bore witness of it, of the message by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the author of Hebrews said, we must pay close attention to the message we've heard so we do not drift away And why must we pay close attention? Because God has testified of that message by these miracles that were performed by the messengers themselves. That's what Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 says. Very clear that we've got to pay attention to the message because God has legitimized or validated the messengers themselves through the miracles they performed. Here's an example in action. Acts 8, 5. You don't have to turn there. Philip went down to Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs or miracles that he did. So the people paid attention to Philip when they saw the miracles he performed. Now it kind of builds up to this. So if miracles are not producing repentance and faith, then what does? If miracles are not producing repentance and faith, then what does? The Word of God, Scripture. You can turn back to Luke 16. Abraham answered this very clearly in the account. So the rich man wants this miracle. Verse 29, Luke 16, 29. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets let them your brothers hear moses and the prophets and rich man the rich man said no father abraham but if someone goes to them from the dead then they will repent and then notice what he says here this is incredibly important in verse 31 abraham said if they do not hear or believe moses and the prophets or do not believe the scriptures neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead And this brings us to our last lesson. Lesson four, Scripture can produce godly repentance. Scripture can produce godly repentance. Abraham explained that the only thing that could prevent the rich man's five brothers from joining him in torment was hearing God's word and repenting. Abraham said very clearly, if, you, if your brothers are not going to experience the same torment as you, 
they must repent at the preaching or hearing reading of God's word listen to these verses about scripture there's nothing like this about miracles you can't I'm about to share some verses about scripture producing repentance or faith you will not find any verses like this about miracles John 6 33 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh has no help at all the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life James 1 18 of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth we're born again or brought to life spiritually by the word first Peter 1 23 since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God it is the word of God that causes us to be born again regenerates us brings us to life I had to change this lesson initially I had scripture produces godly repentance but that's not always true why did I change the lesson from scripture produces godly repentance to scripture can produce godly repentance because scripture or God's word doesn't always produce godly repentance does it if it always did every time you preach the gospel people would get saved right just as there are examples of individuals repenting at the preaching of God's word I mean in scripture there are also examples in scripture of people not repenting at the preaching of God's word for example most of the prophets in your Bible the books of the prophets are largely records of individuals prophets preaching repentance and then people not doing what (laughs) repenting most of the prophets had incredibly miserable and discouraging ministries because they preached repentance they preached God's word to people who would not repent and interestingly another example is the rich man the rich man Abraham says that the rich man's brothers have Moses and the prophets but there's no evidence of them repenting up to this point think about the rich man's situation you say could could scripture really have saved or delivered the rich man yeah it could have because the Old Testament or Moses and the prophets told people to care for the poor care for the less fortunate be generous and so the rich man had what he needed to live a life differently than he did or he had he had what he needed to be convicted about the selfish opulent lifestyle that he lived he had what he needed to be convicted about his selfishness and to become a a more generous or caring person but he refused to repent of his selfishness his sin miracles cannot produce repentance or conversion in the hearts of lost people someone rising from the dead is not more effective than scripture itself just think about that for a moment think about what I just said someone rising from the dead is not more effective in producing repentance than scripture itself is so if you really wanted someone to be saved and you could raise someone from the dead before that person or you could preach scripture to them you should preach scripture to them and this is why we spread the gospel versus miracles this is why we want to be equipped this is why we don't have a school of supernatural training (laughs) this is why the charismatic churches or movements that train people supposedly to perform miracles 
First, don't understand God's word and what people need to be saved and grown in the faith. And second, are deceiving people because there are not miracle workers in our day like there were at Christ's first advent or occasionally in the Old Testament like Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. The greatest thing that you can give people is the gospel. You don't need to perform a miracle for them. Spurgeon said, If the Holy Scripture be not in the hands of God enough to bring you to the faith of Christ, then though an angel from heaven, then though the saints from glory, then though God himself should descend on earth to preach to you, you would go on unwed and unblessed. That's kind of eloquent language for Spurgeon saying that if God's word is not enough to convince you to repent and believe, then there's no miracle that could be performed that would do it. Look at the way verse 31 is written. It says, if the rich man's brothers do not hear Moses and the prophets, do you see how Moses and the prophets are personified? He actually speaks of, even though we're talking about scripture, which is singular, Abraham talks about Moses and the prophets and says them. He's personifying them. He's making Moses and the prophets look like individuals who speak. And isn't that fitting? Because do Moses and the prophets speak to us? Why is it called God's word? Because it's what he wants to say to us. It is how he speaks to us. It's been said, if you want God to speak to you, read his word. If you want him to speak to you audibly, read it out loud. (laughs) Sometimes people say, if an angel appeared to me, then I would believe. And I'm always kind of shocked by that. Whenever someone says that, there's a couple reasons I know that they're not familiar with God's word. Because anytime in scripture an angel appeared to someone, was it a pleasant or unpleasant experience? It was an unpleasant experience. You don't want an angel to appear to you. Don't ever say that. It, it was terrifying to, to most people. But even if an angel appeared to people, the only way that that would produce repentance and faith in that person's life is if the angel also did what? Preached. The angel by itself would not cut it. And this has important application for us. I hope this could inform your evangelism, especially as we're talking about biblical counseling so much, sharing God's word with others. If you share God's word with people, but they do not believe, there is nothing else you can do to cause them to believe. There's nothing greater you can resort to. If you have shared God's word or preached the gospel to people and they do not believe, even if you could perform miracles, you would not increase the likelihood of them believing. If people have rejected the word of God, there's nothing that they could witness that would cause them to believe. That's a very sobering thought to me and a very encouraging one because I can't perform miracles. If I thought people needed to see miracles to believe, I'd feel pretty inadequate. But to know that I have the one thing that can cause belief, once I've shared that, if they don't believe, then I'm no longer at fault. Something sad about this is there are some Christians in churches who do believe like the rich man. They believe that Scripture is insufficient to produce repentance. They are just like the rich man. They would tell God, no, unless someone sees someone raised from the dead, unless they see a miracle, this person must witness something supernatural to believe. They're just like the rich man. There are Christians and there are churches that claim that, that that's what people need. Let me share some examples of people being brought to repentance by preaching. 
Earlier I mentioned Elijah and Elisha and the lack of repentance in their miracles. Can anyone think of a prophet who did preach and then see repentance? You, you, there, I, there's, you, there's not a whole lot to choose from, is there? <laughs> you say Jonah, and you might not even be able to think of a second one. And what's interesting about Jonah is he wasn't a miracle worker, but he was part of something miraculous. He was swallowed up by this fish, kept alive by God for three days and three nights. He's thrown overboard into the sea, survives these days and nights in the fish, comes up out of the fish. Have you ever wondered what Jonah looked like after coming up out of the fish? (laughs) Being in there three days, you'd almost think the way he looked would have been enough to cause the people in Nineveh to repent, right? Like some terrifying zombie-looking individuals coming and preaching to us. But my point is, they didn't repent. They did not repent when they saw Jonah. They did not repent at him being alive in a fish for three days and three nights and then being vomited out on dry land. They did not repent until Jonah 4.4 when Jonah called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Another great example of repentance. Do you remember in Josiah's day? Here's the context. Josiah takes over the nation. It's in a terrible state. God's uh, house has been uh, completely neglected, and he sends individuals to repair it. And when they were repairing the house of God, what did they find in there? They found the law. They found scripture. Imagine that. You find the word of God inside of a church, right? So they find the word of God inside this temple, inside the house of God. They bring it back, and they read it to Josiah. They read God's law to Josiah, and listen to this. One of the must be one of the most beautiful pictures of a tender response to God's word, the conviction and brokenness that he experienced. We could only pray to have as responsive of a heart to God's word as Josiah demonstrates right here. It says, 2 Kings 22, 11, when Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. An incredible demonstration of repentance in response to God's word. Turn to Acts 1. This is getting toward the end of the places we'll turn. Turn to Acts 1, verse 15. And I just want to show you a contrast here. Acts 1, verse 15. Peter stood up among the brothers. This is the, this is the number of disciples Jesus has at this time. How many? Look in Acts 1, 15. How many disciples are there at this time? Am I the only one that finds that shocking that there are only 120 followers of Christ? That's it. After his three and a half years of ministry, all of the miracles, 120. That's it. People following him. Now turn to Acts 2 and look at verse 40 to see this number just explode from preaching God's word. Acts 2 verse 40. With many other words... Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were out of that day about 3,000 souls. That's pretty dramatic, isn't it? They just went from 120 to what? Because of the preaching of God's word. Look in Acts 4. Verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So again, 
And this is what's interesting. You went from 120 to add 3,000 and then to add, that's like incredible growth. I mean, people talk about, you know, church growth. There's nothing in all human history like this. And what didn't produce it was tongues of flame over people's head. Here's my point. What didn't produce this was the supernatural on the day of Pentecost. All the supernatural did on the day of Pentecost, all the miraculous did, the people speaking in tongues and flames over their head, was provide a platform for Peter to preach. That's it. All that happened on Pentecost was Peter was given a platform to preach. And it was his preaching that resulted in the salvation of all these people. From 120 to 3,000, and then add another 5,000 on top of that. The supernatural didn't cut it. It was the preaching of God's word. And I want to conclude with this. In verse 30, the rich man said, If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He was referring to Lazarus rising from the dead. Abraham rejected that idea, but let me ask you this. Was the rich man's request for someone to be raised from the dead accomplished? It was. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. His resurrection is perhaps the most verifiable event in human history. Some, there's this gentleman, I don't know, he, won't, he continues to try to argue Christianity with me, and he's convinced that Christ wasn't resurrected. None of us have seen George Washington. None of us have seen Abraham Lincoln. Why do we believe in these individuals? Because of the records about them, because of the effect that they had, the effect from their lives. Has there ever been another life that has ever had as much effect on all of human history as Christ? No, not even close. This, number two would be Adam, because his life introduced death into the world, and Christ's life introduced life into the world. But if we're talking about what verifies or legitimizes something from the past, it is the effect or evidence of it. And there's nothing that has, there's no more verifiable event in all of human history than Christ's resurrection. There's nothing else that has as much record or history or consequences positively from it than Jesus' resurrection. The rich man made the accusation that not enough had been done for his brothers to repent. Do you see how he subtly says that? He's like, not enough has been done for my brothers, and it's the exact same accusation that is frequently made against God. God is unfair. He has not done enough. But God has most certainly done enough. He sent his only begotten son into the world to die for our sins. In our case, he has given us a greater, fuller revelation of himself in the New Testament. We have every reason to repent and to believe and to share that gospel message with others. After the service, we're going to introduce some new members, and then after that, if you have any questions, or I can actually, never mind. I'm, we have some sickness going through our home. That's why I'm kind of laying low today. So, <laughs> so actually, I won't be up front after service, but that's just because I'm, I don't know if I'm still contagious and I'm trying to keep my distance from people. Father, I thank you for your word and the powerful work that it does in our lives. Let us believe this even if our flesh might tempt us to think otherwise that the supernatural or miraculous would be the cause of faith or belief or repentance in people's lives, let us hold to the truth that your scripture teaches that there is no more effective tool for producing faith and repentance than your word, and let us preach that and share that with others. Father, let us preach repentance 
by preaching the gospel. And let us not hold to that false belief that we would need to see miracles to believe. I thank you for this time this morning and, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.